Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I think that the Christian church needs a bumper sticker that reads, Split Happens. Well, it's easy to understand what happened. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're going. Barnabas, we assume, thought that this was a really good idea and he readily agreed. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them just as they had done earlier on their first missionary trip. Paul disagreed. John Mark had deserted them on that trip early on in Perga of Pamphylia. At this point, John Mark had returned to his hometown, Jerusalem, uh, rather than continue with the work of preaching the gospel in cities and countries that had not yet heard the gospel. Barnabas, by way of obvious implication, felt that Mark deserved a second chance. And Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement over this that they split up as a missionary team. Barnabas taking Mark and going anyway, retracing their steps, taking the boat to Cyprus. That had been Paul's idea, but now Paul couldn't go, so he chose Silas and left, heading north rather than west, through Syria into Cilicia. Well, who was right? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? The text does not tell us directly. Luke, our author and narrator, blames neither, nor does he make any editorial judgment. Certainly, I actually feel some sympathy for Barnabas. Barnabas is a second chance kind of a guy, and in that he faithfully represents God, who is a second chance kind of a God. Indeed, there is some irony in Paul's refusal to allow Mark a second chance. You see, when we first met Paul back in Acts chapter 7, a young man named at the time Saul, when we first met Paul, he was a key instigator of the first organized persecution of the church in Acts chapter 8, going from house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. Not long after, in um, chapter 9, Saul meets Christ for himself on the road to Damascus, and he himself becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And when, uh, on his return to Jerusalem, Saul tries to join the church, none of the apostles would have anything to do with him. They were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. It was Barnabas who took him and brought him to the apostles and stood up for him and told them how Saul had seen the Lord Jesus on his journey and that, that Jesus had spoken to him and that Saul thereafter had preached Jesus fearlessly in the synagogues of Damascus. And even by that early stage, we'd already known Barnabas for quite a while. Um, in fact, he was one of the earliest converts, um, a, a, a Levite, a priest from Cyprus. His name, Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, we hear, hear about how he sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which, which translates son of encouragement. But it means basically, you know, encouragement concentrate, the very essence of encouragement. Well, Barnabas was a good bloke, an apostle, 
A man filled with the Holy Spirit, powerful evangelist, teacher and preacher, a key leader in the early church. In fact, through most of the time up until this, Barnabas, Barnabas was the leader and Paul was the wingman. So the irony is this. Paul himself has benefited from Barnabas's second chance generosity, but now he is not willing to extend that same grace to Mark. Perhaps, however, the text gently implies that actually it is Paul who is right about this. There must have been something about Mark's earlier withdrawal from the mission trip that put that whole exercise in jeopardy. They were depending on him in some way, and he let them down. And Paul is not willing to put mission in jeopardy. And Paul's right about that. The evangelization of the world is the church's top priority. Too important to jeopardize, too vital to put at risk for the sake of Mark's feelings. And from now on, Barnabas and Mark completely disappear from Luke's book. The focus is totally on Paul and his missionary work, his second and then his third missionary trips, and then his imprisonment and transportation to Rome. Well, what, what do we know about Mark? Mark first appears in the book of Acts in chapter 12. At that point, the apostle Peter has been put in prison by King Herod, but the Lord releases him. And upon his release, Peter goes to the house of a woman named Mary, the mother of John, who we find out is also called Mark. And at Mary's house, many people had gathered and were praying for Peter. Now, this is obviously a rich person's house. It has uh, an outer entrance into courtyard and room, uh, enough room for a large group of people to assemble. Um, you know, at this time, Barnabas and Saul were also in Jerusalem in order to present financial gifts to the church of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the church was struggling at that time because of a famine. And uh, Barnabas and Saul were bringing gifts from the church in Antioch. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, they took John Mark with them back to Antioch. And not long after that, the Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul to set out on their first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Their first stop on this trip is Cyprus, Barnabas' homeland. Then they head to Perga in Pamphylia. It is only at this point that we find out that actually Mark is with them too because Luke tells us in Acts 13.13, 13, from Paphos, Paul and his apostles sailed to Perga in Pamphylia 
where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So that's how John Mark, or, or Mark, came to be a part of this first mission in the first place. What does it mean that Paul and Barnabas split up at this point? Well, as far as I know, this is the first ever church split, and it was clearly a very painful event. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And we don't need to be told anything more than this. It is obviously a tremendously painful thing for both Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they'd been travel companions a number of times. They'd done all this work together. They'd worked so well together. Um, each had chosen the other as, as, as a gospel partner. Um, it must have been enormously painful for them and, of course, extremely humiliating for John Mark and probably very awkward for Silas. And for all of their friends, I'm sure this thing was a grief, something very sad. But when we consider how their first missionary journey started, the start of the second missionary journey is actually pretty inauspicious. The first one started with prayer and fasting and worship and the Holy Spirit speaking powerfully in the congregation of the saints. Clear direction. This second one starts with a suggestion from Paul, and that seems reasonable enough. But there's, there's no mention of prayer, no mention of fasting or worship or, or of decisions made in the context of a congregation of prophets and teachers. And so it starts with the suggestion, and from there it descends into argument. Now, presumably, presumably our Lord Jesus Christ actually had an opinion on whether or not John Mark should join the team. But it would seem that as people took sides and dug in their heels, no one could discern what the Lord was actually saying. So let's see it clearly and say it clearly. Here we have the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, unable to discern the Lord's will. Why were they unable? Well, because they were unwilling. We can be sure that this whole thing was therefore grievous to our Lord, who was pained by all of this needless hurt and grief. What is this telling us about the apostles? They certainly weren't infallible. And they weren't sinless. They are not being presented to us as heroes. Well, we've just um, finished a series of sermons on the European Reformation and as part of that series of sermons, we actually looked at the idea of canonicity. The doctrine or of canon or canonicity is the, is the whole idea about some books being in the Bible and other books not being in the Bible. In the first couple of centuries after Jesus, many, many Christians were writing many, many things. But out of these thousands of documents, only 27, only 27 documents actually were recognized as being God's word, and incorporated into the Bible to form the New Testament in answer to the Old. So then, for example, the Gospel of Matthew was included, but not the Gospels of Thomas or of Bartholomew. And only some of Paul's letters were included. Only some of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church were included, but not all of them. 
And probably at least two of them are missing from the New Testament. So, for example, what we call 1 Corinthians actually refers to an earlier letter which is not in the Bible. So 1 Corinthians is obviously 2 Corinthians. And that makes 2 Corinthians 3 Corinthians, except that many people believe there was a letter in between that has also not been included. So 2 Corinthians is perhaps actually 4 Corinthians. And there may have been correspondence after that. So... Only a select few first century documents were recognized as being God's word. And yet the Bible considers itself, all of it, every single word of it, to be God's word. It tells us that it is inspired in the sense of the Holy Spirit speaking through the author. And in such way that it is exactly what God said in the way, said in the way God wanted it said such that it is right to say of any words in the Bible, God says this. Given that this is what Scripture says about itself, and also that this is the Christian experience of it, Holy Scripture must therefore have the highest possible authority. God's word is the highest authority, and no human authority can either confirm or validate it. Scripture is not authenticated by the church, as though the church had authority over Scripture. No, rather the church recognizes God's word. Canonization is a process of recognition, not a process of authorization. Historically, the early church recognized that 27 documents of of, uh, um, apostolic origin, were God's word in the same way that the Old Testament was God's word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Scripture is self-authenticating, Christians recognizing their Lord's voice. Scripture is self-authenticating, just as the color green is self-authenticating. We don't decide what is green and what isn't green. Rather, we recognize what is green and what isn't. Now, the idea of canonicity with respect to the New Testament also includes the idea that the New Testament preserves for us faithfully apostolic teaching. So... On the basis of canonicity, we understand that the apostles taught God's word with God's authority and that this is faithfully preserved for us in the New Testament, which is God's word. The New Testament is exactly the way God wants it to be because it is his words. However, this is not to suggest, and this is my point for today, this is not to suggest that everything the apostles did or said was right. It is not to suggest that the apostles were somehow inherently infallible or perfect. No. But no matter, actually the point is this. Jesus is the hero of the Bible, not the apostles. I'm, I'm, with respect to the European Reformation, I'm also aware that in that series of sermons, I did not really make any, more, any significant mention of the pain and grief that that church split involved. That's another whole sermon or another whole sermon series in itself. But I'm going to try to say it clearly now. The European Reformation involved unimaginable amounts of pain and grief. Vast numbers of Protestants and Roman Catholics died for their respective faiths. Families were split apart. People were burnt at the stake. Both sides contemptuously rejected the other. 
as heretics. And I'm sure that our Lord was deeply grieved by this pain and hurt. In actual fact, compared with the European Reformation, what we, ha- ha- what we have here today in our text from Acts is technically not really a split. And that's because Paul and Barnabas would certainly have remained in fellowship with each other, if not in partnership with each other. They did not reject each other as being heretics, as being unchristian, but rather they did reject each other as gospel partners. In other words, if if they'd ever found themselves at the same church service, they would have been happy to share Holy Communion, recognizing the body, recognizing each other as truly belonging to the body, not just uh, just, just not being able to work together. In contrast, in the European Reformation, Catholics and Protestants excommunicated to each other. They refused to recognize each other as Christians. They refused to break bread and share the cup together. But indeed, we we do know that, in fact, we know for sure that Paul and John Mark were reconciled. Nevertheless, whether we are talking about a split in fellowship or a split in partnership, such as the church split that created St. Barnabas back in 1991. Whether we're talking about a split in fellowship or a split in partnership, church splits are enormously painful. So what can we learn from this one in Acts chapter 15? Well, first and foremost, the absence of prayer, fasting, worship, And the input of a community of elders is telling. Jesus had a view on where John Mark ought to be, but neither Paul nor Barnabas could humble themselves as much as to be able to discern what the Lord was saying. Secondly, Paul and Barnabas quickly put themselves on an adversarial footing. Paul's position was this. Gospel mission is paramount. I'm not willing to make any decision that might put gospel mission in jeopardy. Barnabas' position was this. John Mark deserves a second chance. Without second chances, we're all finished, Paul, especially you. Well, who was right? Well, both of them, obviously. What they lacked was the ability to marry together those two independent but true insights. You see, adversarial conversations work really, really well at splitting apart people and churches and communities and really, really badly at actually solving problems. The real problem is that we as a species don't really know how to avoid them. We have, just as one example, placed our entire political process on an adversarial footing. There is a party in power and a party in opposition. What is the nature of their relationship? Their relationship is intentionally adversarial. What fool thought that was going to work? What about massively important social issues? Abortion, same-sex marriage, euthanasia. Well, let's consider the abortion debate. What side are you on? Are you pro-life or pro-choice? I'm both, obviously. I mean, what fool would be pro-death? 
What idiot would be anti-choice? What hamstrings, hamstrings the debate is the a priori assumption that the issue has to be settled on an adversarial footing. And our failure, and it's a massive failure, is to not be able to marry the important insights from both the pro-life and the pro-choice sides of the debate. One side champions the rights of the unborn. The other champions the rights of the born. Can those apparently competing interests be reconciled? Of course they can, but not, I believe, in an adversarial context. Not if people are arguing with one another. It seems to me that the more precious and serious the issue, the less likely, likely it is that an adversarial context is the right or responsible context in which to settle the matter. I, I think occasionally, very occasionally, but sometimes we just have to say, this issue is so sensitive that a debate is not appropriate. Arguments really please God, really unify people, and really find the right way forward together. So what should we do instead? Well, one thing that we can do, and it's an important thing, I think, is that we, is that we should ask people what they value rather than what their position is. When, you see, when we listen to our opponent's position, we are likely to hear something that we disagree with. But when we listen to what our opponents value, then we're very likely to hear things that we do agree with. And from there, people can work together on a solution that preserves the values, if not the demands, of each side of the debate. So then, uh, when, when we are faced with an adversary, when we're faced with an adversary, whether it be in the boardroom, or in the staff room, or in the playground, or in the classroom, or uh, um, in the living room, or in the bedroom, when we are faced with an adversary, we must firstly avoid the temptation to defend ourselves. Secondly, avoid the temptation to dig in our heels or dig a trench. Thirdly, we must be very, very careful to spot it if our pride has been offended. Um, I don't like being told that I'm wrong. Um, if you tell me that I'm wrong, I am very, very likely to be offended and very, very unlikely to spot that I've been offended. Usually when I'm told that I'm wrong, it usually sends me into frantic activity in which I work feverishly to shore up my position, to show myself and them and the world that I'm right. And all of this is fueled, of course, by self-righteous indignation, by pride, in other words, by sin. But if we can let go of offense, if we can humble ourselves, and seek to understand what our opponent is valuing, we might just learn something and find a way forward. So then, where are we up to? Well, summarizing points one and two, when we find ourselves fiercely disagreeing, let's stop, pray, fast, worship, seek the input of prophets and teachers, humble ourselves so that we can hear what it is that the Lord is saying and do our level best uh, to avoid an adversarial conversation. And here now is a third point. We can trust Jesus. 
Um, as far as the story of the book of Acts is concerned, Barnabas and Mark are finished, as at chapter 15, verse 39, never to be mentioned again. But in actual fact, they are not finished as far as Jesus is concerned. Barnabas will go on to have an extraordinary ministry on the island of Cyprus. This will include the writing of an extraordinary letter to the Christians in Rome called the Letter to the Hebrews. Now, what I'm saying here is not historically certain, but I believe, along with many people right down the ages, I believe that it is quite likely that Barnabas wrote Hebrews. We know that Barnabas will die a martyr's death, stoned to death in, in or around the year 61 AD, and so glorify his Lord. It was the only way the Jewish authorities could shut him up. Such was his success as an evangelist on Cyprus. And as for Mark, when we next hear of him, he is in Rome with Paul, uh, looking after Paul in his incarceration, Colossians 4.10. And thereafter, he was Peter's travel companion, interpreter, secretary, and helper also in Rome. He would eventually author his own book, one that would bear his name, The Gospel of Mark. Again, I'm assuming that the three marks mentioned in the New Testament are the same person, not something that we have any external evidence for or against, but it is the tradition of the church to understand that they are the same person. And whether or not we've got the details right, we can know for certain that Jesus had a plan and that Jesus fulfilled the purposes he had for them. So what would have happened if Paul and Barnabas had prayed, fasted, worshipped, consulted the elders and humbled themselves under Christ's mighty hand, begging forgiveness for hurt and offense? What would have happened? Well, I think they would have heard that Jesus wanted Paul to take Silas and go to Cilicia and Barnabas, Jesus wanted him to take Mark and go to Cyprus. They would have done the same thing, in other words. However, instead of a split, it would have been expansion and diversification of mission. And instead of tears, there would have been praise and thanksgiving. Well, um, today we begin, or today we have begun, a uh, series of sermons on the book of Acts. This series will lead us into Christmas. Or more accurately, today we are continuing a sermon series that actually began back in 2014. And we've looked at sections of the book of Acts each year since. Um, last year we looked at Paul's conversion through to his first missionary trip, Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 15, verse 35. That's why we started here today at verse 36. The Lord be with you. And 